Come in, come in, and welcome to the Cave of the Eco Chamber, a podcast brought to you by the journalists of Ends Report, exploring the most important environmental policy in the UK, with me, your host, James Adjapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be bringing you an exclusive on the homes held up by nutrient neutrality and what the new Leveling Up Act means for them. Wales's murky reputation on water pollution in failing protected sites. And the departure of Chris Stark, who is stepping down as chief of the Climate Change Committee. And for our deep dive, we'll take a look ahead at the key environmental policies in 2024 and where things could get spicy. So let's adventure together as we explore this week's Eco Chamber! First up, it's an ENDS exclusive that the number of homes which can't get planning permission because of nutrient neutrality in England stands at 50,000. What does that mean? Well, we'll find out. To help me wade through the policy reads this week, I'm joined by ENDS Report's Tess Collie and Shosha Aidy. Okay, nutrient neutrality tests, what is it? For anyone who's heard me say this 10,000 times, I apologise, but here we go again. So, nutrient neutrality began as a planning position first taken by Natural England uh, in 2019, and that advised local authorities at that time just in South Hampshire that they could only approve new new homes in certain areas where there are protected sites uh, if they could be sure that they would not add to the, the nitrogen and phosphorus load in those areas because... Those protected areas were at real risk of being made much worse by these nutrients because the nutrients weren't good for them. (laughs) The nutrients were making them much worse because if you have too many, it can cause eutrophication where uh, the nitrate and the phosphorus overload the water system and algae blooms and that takes oxygen out and it starves all the creatures living in it. So it's bad. Um, But what happened was lots of local authorities started being unable to grant permission for all these homes and course we are in a housing crisis uh it's only getting worse every year and it, so this problem started to become a bigger and bigger problem and they couldn't grant those homes because natural england as a statutory consultee wouldn't support a planning application and therefore if they did grant them they were at risk of a legal challenge is that right yes that's exactly right it all comes back to a legal challenge that was first played out uh, when you know in, when we were in the European Union and under derived laws from from the from the EU, it's not Natural England itself just deciding it, it thinks this. Right, that's the interpretation of Natural England of the Dutch nitrogen case. Correct. So fast forward to now, how did you get to the bottom of that fifty thousand figure? Slowly. Um, <laughs> so I sent off more than more than fifty freedom of information requests out to those local planning authorities. Uh, were impacted by this advice, um, and that's you know the the actual because local planning authority boundaries change sometimes, and they've changed quite a lot in the last year. So th- it was it's quite complex finding out just who is impacted first of all. Um, but basically, I asked them all, "How many homes have you got held up? Uh, how many specifically? How many homes have you been unable to to grant planning permission to?" And I got my answers, and I added them all up, and the sum total is just shy of fifty thousand. Now, notably, these figures aren't the same as others floating around in the in the nutrient neutrality universe. Which we're all in. Which we're all in, whether we like it or not, <laughs> and whether you knew it or not. Um, can you just explain how your numbers are different to others out there? Yeah, so they're, they're, not, they're not exactly the same. Last summer, in the run-up to 
the government's attempt to scrap the nutri- neutrality rules, um, which, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know all about because it is quite the furore with green groups because, you know, it, it risks basically making all these protected sites even worse. But in the run up to that, it was frequently cited in, in the national press that as many as 145,000 homes were being held up by the regulations. And that figure came from analysis published by uh, the house building lobby group, the, the Home Builders Federation. Um, and it's still being used to, to bolster this argument that that the rules are a major blocker of of new homes. Um, but yeah, the, it's not it's not exactly the same figure. And can you just tell us why they're not like for like? Yeah. So with with the Home Builders Federation, they've you know what they've told me and and what we looked into is well, what they do with this hundred forty five thousand figure, which has now gone up to one hundred fifty thousand actually. Um, is they're they're saying they're trying to tally up the total number of homes held up since. The, the advice came in, in in 2019 and the number that would have been brought forward had nutrient neutrality not been an issue. Now, there's lots of um, estimations, lots of room for error in there. If you go on our website, there's the, we've kind of gone into just how they got to that figure. And you know when we did that at the time last year, it raised a few eyebrows. Um, but it's not the same as what I've done, which is I've got the numbers currently held up as of the, the end of last year. Um, and that is, you know, a static figure. It could be different in a year's time, but it's the case right now. It's a snapshot of yeah. of where we are. Can you tell us some of the worst impacted areas for nutrient yeah. neutrality? Well, so definitely the the worst from from my figure seems to be Broadland and, and South Norfolk Council and that whole area of, of Norfolk is really struggling, and they haven't got many mitigation options at the moment, or, or they're struggling to find them because that was something that came out from this analysis is that the areas like in South Hampshire in the Solent, for example, where it, this was originally nutrient neutrality was blocking houses, there's now many fewer homes blocked there, um, which is quite interesting because it suggests that these, when you have the mitigation options available, nutrient neutrality doesn't necessarily become the major kind of blocker that it has been uh, kind of purported to be. There's lots of other things holding housing up. Yeah, right. It's not. It's not. It's not. Not necessarily just the water pollution rules. And that is interesting. So it suggests that you know the private market, which um you know pushing these nutrient mitigation schemes, it might be working in some areas. Um, Shosha, how does Tess's numbers square with the government's new Leveling Up and Regeneration Act? Well, I think they've sort of moved on now from wanting to scrap nutrient neutrality rules um, and instead they're putting this emphasis on water companies um, and them sort of getting their acts together in terms of sewage pollution. So by the end of January, the government have stated that they're going to publish a list of designated areas um, in which water companies will be obliged to upgrade their wastewater treatment works um, and that's by April 2030. Now that to me, and I'm sure to other water campaigners, sounds like a good thing. It does, because um, a lot of the blame for excess nutrient pollution is actually levelled against sewage pollution from water companies, um, as well as this slurry runoff from farms. According to the consultancy Brookbanks, apparently new homes are estimated to make up less than 1% of contribution to these nutrient levels in England's rivers, whereas agriculture was actually found to make up 70% of this pollution. That percentage figure between water and agricultural pollution will vary quite significantly from region to region, but it shows how major the impact is um, and how the picture is a bit more complex than it first seems. So the government's after the water companies now. 
test. It's all jobs are good and we're all done, aren't we? Yeah. So, well, it's not maybe entirely sorted because uh, at the end of this month, what we're going to have come out from the government is this list of uh, areas that that will be, as Josh said, designated uh, where where wastewater treatment works will have to be upgraded. But with that uh, will come a requirement, basically, that um, local planning authorities take those upgrades as a given and that, and that they will more or less uh, solve the problem. And some legal commentators have voiced their, some concern about that, about that assumption being made and if it's definitely going to work because it, it could, by some interpretations, bulldoze through any notion of a precautionary principle, uh, which is actually now embedded in the government's environmental principles policy statement. Um, so that's a, there's, a, there's a question mark there and there's a question marks over, you know, what, are, what will it mean uh, if, if developers are asked to maybe do temporary mitigation schemes? What does that look like? Are they effective? Or will developers just put off starting schemes? Essentially, um, so the, but there's a lot of unknowns. We there's a, all with this leveling up legislation. It was passed with a lot with the government saying we'll clarify all these details that people don't quite understand how they'll work. We'll clarify that later. We're still waiting for it to be clarified, though the act is now law. So, one to watch. For our next story, we cross into Wales, where the country's track record on water pollution is back in the eco chamber. Shosha, why is that? Well, according to a new evidence report that was published by Natural Resources Wales, seven out of the nine special areas of conservation um, that have sort of riverine features in Wales were found to fail on certain conservation objectives um, regarding water quality standards. So these are the sort of the super highly protected rivers and areas. Exactly. And um, this analysis looked at data that was collected between 2016 and 2019 um, on measures that give an indication of the health of those ecosystems, such as the dissolved oxygen content, ammonia levels, and also the trophic diatom index. Um, this last test, the TDI, looks at the trophic status of rivers based on um, a diatom, which is a single-celled little alga, um, and based on this composition, they can get a sense of what the levels of the nutrients are in the water, whether they're too high, and how that's affecting the local biodiversity. And thus we come full circle back to nutrients. Can you just take us through some of the worst offenders? So of all the special areas of conservation, um, the areas with the most target failures were along in Clevi, um, the River Usk, River Wye, and the Avon Tavy. Natural Resources Wales said these results are consistent um, with issues related to organic pollution and nutrient enrichment, um, which they were already aware is an issue in those areas. Um, a small number of target failures were also noted on the River Dee, the um, Avon Eden and the Avon Guivai. No failures were discovered on the Avon Towie and the Avon Glaslin. I mean, fantastic. I, I really couldn't have pronounced any of those Welsh rivers. So absolutely amazing just for that alone. I just want to apologise as well if I've pronounced them badly. I did try and um, double check, but I'm not too familiar with the Welsh language. Well, do email us if we've got that wrong, uh, ecochamber at haymarket.com, uh, Welsh listeners. You discussed some of those tests. How did the rivers measure up to them? So overall, there were 119 water bodies included in the test. Um, and water bodies here actually refers to different sections of the river that have just been attributed like this um, to make the data easier to read. Um, but of 
the 65 of those parts that were assessed using the TDI assessment, which is that test that looks at the um, ALGA, 45% failed um, their targets, which is quite concerning because it suggests the nutrient levels um, might be too high. In two special areas of conservation, there were also target failures noted for ammonia, and that was the Anlong Plevai um, and also the River Usk. But the failures at Anlong Plevai were described as being as particular concern um, as several water bodies failed for three or four attributes of the total ammonia and unionized ammonia test, um, which sounds a bit complicated, but the important one here is the unionized ammonia tests because this form of ammonia is toxic to aquatic life and very difficult to detect. Um, so the fact it was detected is concerning. And both indicators of nutrient enrichment. Yes. The River Y was one of those iconic rivers on NRW's naughty list. And now NRW are on the naughty list. Tess, can you explain to our listeners what's happened? So... A legal complaint has been lodged by uh, the campaigners at Fish Legal uh, against Natural Resources Wales for its alleged failure to deliver on its statutory responsibilities to protect the Rawai from agricultural pollution, chiefly among those uh, those caused by the poultry industry. Um, so yeah, the Y for anyone who doesn't know, it starts in mid Wales and goes to meet the seven in England, and but it was downgraded to unfavourable declining status last year by Natural England, uh, which is the worst, basically the worst one you can be uh, if you're a protected waterway, uh, along with one of its tributaries, the Lug. Um, Natural Resources Wells initially concluded in 2022 that there was no evidence of a deterioration or environmental damage linked to the poultry industry. However, what Fish Legal are claiming is that the regulators backtracked on this initial position, um, having confirmed that at least seven out of the 43 Y water bodies in Wales are failing on key measures of river health, uh, including levels of phosphate pollution, uh, and those are linked to agricultural activity. Fish Legal are very tenacious. They seem to care about the why, but why should we, Shosha? The river has a designated special area of conservation status, um, and that is predominantly for its fish species, such as the iconic Atlantic salmon and the mysterious lamprey, shad and bullhead, as well as the river plant life, um, such as the water crowfoot. It's also a national landscape, formerly known as an area of outstanding natural beauty, um, and it's the fourth longest river in the UK. So there's a lot of things that make it important, apart from it just being an intrinsic part of nature we want to protect. Um, it's also because of this special status that NRW has a duty to protect the wildlife from polluting activities, and that is a statutory duty. And Q Fish Legal, on its legal challenge over agricultural pollution and chicken farms, what do we know about the number of poultry units along the Y? So as of July 2020, um, in the counties of Shropshire, Herefordshire and Powys, um, which is the Y flows through all of those areas. There are 500 farms and nearly 1,500 intensive poultry units containing over 44 million birds in total. And an IPU, for anyone not familiar, that you have to have a permit. They're permitted because they house 40,000 or more birds. So it's a huge scale operation and clearly something that Fish Legal are unhappy about. They are. And they um, reportedly notified NRW that environmental damage was being caused by this IPUs um, in Wales in June 2020 and again in 2021. 
um, after noticing like these algal blooms that started up high in the Y catchment. So it's it's been a long running issue that they've been raising awareness of. Um, and Justin Neal, who's a solicitor at Fish Legal, told us that um, NRW should have been properly monitoring, investigating, and then acting to tackle the root causes of pollution affecting the River Wye. Um, and then in quotes, of course, um, they have no proper plans in place and there is no sign that they'll be taking regulatory action to restore the river health anytime soon. So that's sort of what's being leveled against NRW at the moment. And what has NRW said in response? So a spokesperson told us that before Christmas, we received correspondence from Fish Legal with regards to our legal duties to protect the Y. We wrote back, they said, detailing our intention to respond to the significant questions raised before the end of January. And then they said, it's disappointing to see that Fish Legal have escalated this before allowing us sufficient time to respond. Because if they had, we would have had all the answers for them. We can only imagine so. And for our last story then, it's the news that the head honcho at the Climate Change Committee has stepped down. Chris Stark, the leader of the government's official climate advisors, has made public his intention to step down. So Tess, when's he off? 26th of April, he is off. That's after six years at the helm. Um, We know that the Climate Change Committee's chief economist, James Richardson, will serve as an interim chief exec until a permanent replacement is, is recruited. So we're going to be down a chief exec and they're still down a chair. So yes, Lord Deben, who served as a chair uh, for over a decade, stepped down a year and a half ago and they still haven't appointed uh, a permanent replacement. The climate physics professor Piers Forster has been filling the role, but only as an interim. And this is actually something that um, experts have started to write to the prime minister complaining about saying, you know, this this isn't okay. Um Apparently, according to reports, um, Chris Skidmore, who's just stepped down as an MP, was potentially in the running, but perhaps won't be Interesting. anymore. <laughs> what was Stark's parting farewell, Shosha? Um, on X, formerly known as Twitter, he said, there is never a good point to leave the CCC, but we're now in an election year and we've kicked off a new cycle of analysis that will conclude in 2026, 2027. Um, he's also said there's a window for someone else to come in and help shape the program, um, which he described as a fresh pair of eyes on the challenge. He said, Lord Deben was our inspirational chairman for a decade and we're very lucky to have Piers Forster as our interim chair, but there is still a moment to remind my friends in government that it's high time they appointed a permanent chair for the CCC. And he finished off by saying it's dragged on too long. So Mm. strong words there. So Stark's not happy about how long it's taken either. I wonder, do we know how long it's going to take for them to appoint a new Chris Stark? So the recruitment for the new chief executive post has been managed by the headhunting firm Saxton Bamfield. hope that's how you say uh, their name. And the advert will be published later this month, according to the the Climate Change Committee. So eyes out if you think it could be you. (laughs) It's probably also important just to give an update because on Tuesday, Caroline Lucas asked Graham Stewart for an answer to when they'll be appointing this chair. Um, And he said the government is moving as quickly as it can, but that the appointment has to be agreed with the devolved nations. And I think because of the tone he sort of took in that um, question exchange, commentators have said that he's sort of blaming this delay um, on anything other than the government. So it will definitely be one to watch. So Lord Deben's replacement, it's it's basically Wales's fault and Northern Ireland and Scotland's fault, (laughs) but it hasn't been done sooner. Nice. 
the replacement will get a thousand pounds a day um, for three days a month, it is said. So it is like it's a very desirable position. So they can't be struggling for candidates. Time for our deep dive as we take a look ahead on environmental policy in the UK and the key battlegrounds on the horizon. To help me wade through the miasma of upcoming policy, I'm joined by N's new assistant editor, Jose Rojo. Welcome, Jose, to the Eco Chamber. Thank you very much. I have been a fan of the podcast since the beginning, so yeah, it's great to be oh, here. Ah, shock, Jose. Um, so you have been working on a huge project for ENDS, uh, looking at the direction of environmental policy in the UK. And you've covered a lot of European environmental policy in your time. So I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts and kind of the focus on where you think we're heading. So to kick things off, I'd love to ask you a question about governance. For all the pledges conservative governments have made about upholding strong environmental measures, I just want to know, do you think they hold water? Yeah, so you're you're cracking on with, uh, you know, of all the areas we investigated, I think is governance is probably, yeah, the one worth uh, starting with, particularly as there's going to be developments very soon with what is called the Environmental Improvement Plan. It's all pretty big picture this time. We're talking about a plan that sets goals on everything environmental from clean air to clean water, chemicals, waste, natural resources and climate change. And what we will be finding out soon is, is the government on track? So if you think about the governance of architecture the UK has laid out post-Brexit, is it ready for the country to meet these goals? So when will we know more? Well, it's, it's going to be very soon, courtesy of a body called the Office for Environmental Protection, the OEP. So we think it's going to be this week on Thursday. So very soon, the watchdog is going to be publishing its big review into the, yeah, the environmental improvement plan. And spoiler alert, while we will have to wait to see what it says, everyone we spoke to pretty much expect the OEP to repeat what it has already been telling the government for quite a while now, which is, look, environmental targets are good, but you really need to follow them with delivery plans, money and political will. As environmental policy wonks, most of us care because we care about nature and its health. What's the big set pieces of policy in that area? Yeah, nature policy, governance society was definitely one of the strong ones, uh, one of the areas to watch this year. And it all begins with biodiversity net gain. This was a policy that was definitely on everyone's radar last year and very soon in February, most likely, we think, it finally should be launching. And for those not in the know, what is net gain? So biodiversity net gain, yeah, just uh, quickly, is a policy being rolled out in England to ensure we can create and we can leave natural habitats in a yeah, measurably better state than before. How do we do this? By requiring, and this I think is the core of the policy, by requiring most development to deliver a minimum 10% uplift in nature improvements. I mean, there is a lot more uh, to it, but this is the gist of it by valuing habitats, looking at things like the rarity of a habitat, the size of it, the condition of it. The government thinks it can make developments more nature friendly. So that's development. What about the countryside? What do farmers have in store this year? 
It was really interesting. I think, because, you know, as important as net gain is, everyone we spoke to for the 2024 preview, they flagged a different something as even more consequential. And it was not about new policy coming in, interestingly, but old policy coming out. In particular, the phasing out of what's known as cross-compliance. So these were uh, the requirements that UK farmers had to meet, uh, such simple environmental protections on their land to get what was called the basic payment scheme. But now, as of uh, 1st of January, cross-compliance is gone. And the experts we spoke to said that 2024 is going to be a make-or-break year for two reasons. The first, you know, it begins with the farmers themselves. They will really start feeling the pinch, you know, the loss of these basic payments, and yet not enough of them, although at least that is the perception, not enough of them are changing over to what replaces these payments, what's called the Environmental Land Management Schemes, or ELMs. And then there is nature, and this is the other key side to this. With nature, with cross-compliance, you, you, you used to have protections for things like hedgerows, dry stone walls, earth banks. All of that is gone, but there is no alternative safeguards in place at the moment to make up for that. So yeah, so what will come out of this limbo? And that's the question that people were asking. You mentioned it. What's ELMS? Uh, yeah, of course. So ELMS, ELMS is a three-tier funding scheme for farmers and land managers in England. It starts with the so most basic level, the Sustainable Farming Incentive, the SFI, which is intended to be accessible to most farmers. And then you move up to the second rung, what is known as the Countryside Stewardship Plus. And then finally, the Large Scale Landscape Recovery Scheme. That's the last one. This month, we actually saw an announcement from the Environment Secretary that funding for some of these pre-existing ELM options will be boosted. But, and this is key, many in farming are still worried about that cut in basic payment rates. And they're actual, you know, they're going to be phased out in 2027, what will happen after that. And so, yeah, so there's much to tuck into this one. And you can definitely, you can get all the detail about all of this in the big green news section of Podcast 72, which came out last week. And how then is land going to be managed? You know, we talk about farmers. How are they going to navigate this new economic period ahead? Is the government trying to work out how best to use our land, our old England soil? What's going on there? So, yeah, I mean, it would be a turning point to this year for farming. And I think it goes back to this bigger question of how does Britain go about using its land after Brexit? How does it manage so that all needs, thinking of food production, net zero, conservation, all of those needs are met? There is a document that people were waiting for last year that was meant to lay out the vision for all this, the land use framework. It was promised in 2023. That didn't happen. And the question is when we will see this, if indeed at all, in this 2024, when, let's face it, the government will have a lot else distracting it. I mean, yeah, this is a this is a really big piece of work for DEFRA when it does come. It's political. It touches on lots of areas. Will there be bandwidth in the government with an election coming up? We will see. And yeah, also connected to land and nature, something that did come out in 2023, albeit at the very last minute, was the big reform of what is called the National Planning Policy Framework, the NPPF. So this is like, essentially, this is the national blueprint of sort of England's uh, house building framework. What's your understanding of the latest reforms then to the NPPF? 
So yeah, this came out in the last week before Christmas. And then, so we're all still digesting all the changes, I suppose. On the one hand, you've got the things we now know for sure are happening, such as the fact that energy efficiency or low carbon improvements will need to be given what's called, what's, yeah, what's being described as significant weight in planning applications, or the fact that interestingly, the removal of land from the green belt has been made harder. On the other hand, though, you've got the things that the government is just exploring for now, such as we've got aligning planning policy with carbon assessment or with climate adaptation or the possible interplay with NERGAIN. So there's lots and lots and lots unresolved with actually with the environmental dimension of planning. And this year will be worth monitoring definitely what the government says or does next on all of these. MPPF, ELMS, lots of acronyms. Have we got any other to watch out for in 2024? Oh, yes. There's always more where that came from. With planning this year, we should also be finding out more about what's called the NDMPs or National Development Management Policies, which could be major, actually, in that councils would have to prioritise national over local considerations when deciding on planning applications. And then another acronym, the EORs or Environmental Outcomes Reports. This this is meant to be a year, a new system, big new system to assess environmental impacts. People are still waiting to see if the government will share some more detail on this after a consultation last year. So another one to watch. Something that doesn't get a lot of attention in the environmental policy space is chemicals. What should we be looking out for there? It was really interesting checking back with our interviews for all policy areas. You see, you see the same trend, and I don't think it's going to surprise anybody. Everyone waiting for lots of things from the government, wondering whether any of it will be coming out with an election this close. And I think chemicals, it really struck me as a policy area where people are waiting for a lot. The, for example, the government has promised it's going to publish what's known as the UK Chemical Strategy this year. It's one of these big vision setting uh, documents that was first pledged in 2018, but then delayed and delayed and delayed. And then there is also with chemicals, there is a consultation that DEFRA has promised this year with more detail on what's called the Alternative Transitional Registration Model for UK REACH. There is the question of what the government is going to do regarding the many decisions, really, it needs to make now. Is it going to ban PFAS, or what's known as forever chemicals in firefighting foams? Is it going to ban lead in ammunition? Is it going to extend the authorization of the neonicotinoid thiamethoxam? So, yeah, lots and lots that people are waiting for, yeah, for more clarity for. And the same extends to waste policy, is that right? Yes, there is love pending with waste. People are waiting to see, for example, if the government will reconsider, as they have promised, the axing of mandatory food waste reporting. They are also waiting to see how the introduction of uh, what's known as uh, digital waste tracking plays out this year. And for more detail, because we don't know that much yet on the reform of the waste carrier broker and dealer registration system in England, which is going to be aligned with permitting regulations. But the interesting thing with waste was that it wasn't actually policy that people placed at the top of the things, just of the list of things to watch. It was actually a legal case, the court victory of Suez against the environment agency. And you can check the end website for lots of great coverage that, yeah, on, on this case. But as a bit of a recap, Suez had demanded the right of appeal against what is called compliance assessment reports that the EA puts together, which among other things dictates war fees the EA can then charge to waste operators 
to get back the costs of regulating. And so last October, a judge came out and yeah, and they agreed with Suez. They said, you've got the right to appeal. And the implications from that ruling could be huge. The main one, I think, to watch is that now an independent mechanism is going to have to be set for waste firms to appeal these EA reports and everyone's keen to see what form it will take. And what about water? Sewage pollution, you know, it's such a hot topic, um, has been for years. With the elections looming, I'm guessing pledges are coming? Yeah, yeah, definitely one to watch in this election year and one of the more fascinating ones. I think it's fair to say we can expect Labour, the Lib Dems, to make a big fuss about things like sewage dumps in campaigning. But there's actually a lot else that's going to be happening behind the scenes. For starters, we're going to see the final verdict by the regulator of what on the business plans of what companies. All these billions they have pledged to invest in their infrastructure. And then from the government side, we're still waiting to see, will they deliver on the promise for a water restoration fund that would channel what the company finds into conservation? Will they deliver on the promise for sustainable urban drainage systems, which should be becoming mandatory for new housing? But yes, a lot to keep an eye out for. But there's another side to this. There's there's, there's this investigation over the pumping of sewage through the so-called combined sewer overflows. The Office for Environmental Protection, the OEP, has already said that DEFRA, the EA, and Offwood might have broken key points of law. That's how they termed it in the monitoring of water firms. And so it will be really important now to see what happens next, any next steps with the investigation. Given what we saw after the Uxbridge by-election last July, air quality is also likely to be an issue made political, isn't it? It was so clear last year, wasn't it, this belief that the ultra-low emission zone or ULIS of Labour Mayor Satikan had allowed the Tories to hold on to the seat against expectation. I think it was a connection that everyone was making, and it's easy to see it now, actually casting a shadow in the local elections that will be held this year in England, in May. London is, is one everyone will be thinking about. It's an obvious one. And, and we have already seen Tory candidate Susan Hall saying that she's going to stop Euler's expansion on day one. But it's actually happening in other places, Labour-held places. So if you look at Manchester, you see the combined authority has already said they will not be setting a charging zone to tackle air pollution. And what will other cities do? And how will this whole thing play against the local elections, how will parties position themselves when campaigning begins improper, definitely one to watch. And reading the political tea leaves then, what might the Tories push with green policy more broadly? I think personally for me, this was what I found the most intriguing of, of, of this 2024 preview, was to step back from all the detail and to look at what the two main parties will do more widely about the environment. So for example, with the Tories, are we going to see again this weaponizing of green policies as was the case with mutual neutrality last year or the combustion, the ban on combustion, engine cars and so on? And interestingly, the feeling seems to be that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak might not repeat this strategy. People told us, I mean, look at nutrient neutrality. They're not trying to scrap the policy anymore. They have pledged nutrient mitigation money in the autumn statement. And so that's the sense that we're getting from interviewees, really, that perhaps this is a government that last year was testing if there were votes to be had from opposing green policy. And now, having seen that the polls are not budging much, they are back to accepting that net zero is going to have to happen. But this is now. Of course, things could change 
so quickly when the first campaigning shots are fired. And and if you think of Sunak, he's already shown he can pivot quickly if the strategy requires it. And so we'll have to watch, uh, yeah, his moves very carefully. And what about Labour then? We've talked about the Tories. What, what are Labour up to? Yeah, if, if, if the Tories are intriguing, Labour, and if you look at the polls especially, might be, could be said to be even more intriguing. Uh, I mean, if the party has said anything about environmental policy, however little it's being covered, it's been documented by ends. I'm thinking, for example, of, you know, this talk of instant and severe fines for sewage dumps. I'm thinking about this talk of personal criminal liability for water bosses and so on. This act they keep talking about on clean air. So yeah, there's a bit of, there's a bit of, uh, there's a bit we know about some of the some of the proposals they might make. But the main question, especially at this stage where we haven't seen the manifestos, is not necessarily the individual measures, but actually, would a Labour government be willing to put in the money? And if you think about it, this is a party that will do anything so as not to be seen as ignoring fiscal constraints, a party that, driven by that obsession, we're seeing it now, is broadly willing to go with the current storyline that they're really isn't that much money to be had at the moment. So if you think of this party now and you think of it coming into power as the polls are predicting, what will they do if they are in office in 2025 when all these billions we've seen committed towards net zero in autumn statements of recent years, when all of that money will need to start being spent? Will they hold firm when the time comes for these hard choices? So if you speak to people, the, the the consensus, I mean, they say, look, we've got evidence to support that. They might not look at all of the backtracking we've already seen from Labour with the 28 billion green investment plan. And yet the reality is what it is. You've got all these targets the UK is legally bound to, renewables, conservation, net zero. How can all of those be met if money is not invested? So yeah, I mean, such an interesting conundrum and we are ends will definitely be watching. Absolutely. Jose, thank you so much. And for any end subscribers, you can check out Jose's 2024 preview with so much detail, facts, wonderfully laid out. I'd really highly recommend it. My thanks to Tess Collie, Shosha Adi, and Jose Rojo for coming on to this week's episode of The Eco Chamber, where I've learned that nutrient neutrality is still biting developers in England. The Wales's track record on water pollution is so smelly that their regulator is being taken to court over the iconic River Wye, why oh why, that Chris Stark is stepping down, how will his replacement handle the challenge ahead, and the policy of 2024, boy oh boy, there's a lot. That's it. That's what I learned, that there's an awful lot. We'd really love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, your views, your critiques, your opinions, your heresies. So you can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on Twitter X using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.